Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Well, we're all watching the events unfold as Hurricane and Tropical Storm Harvey totally soaks large parts of Texas. A combination of warm Gulf waters and lack of winds have contributed to the incredible amount of rain being dumped on southeast Texas. In fact, one expert stated that Harvey could go on to become the worst flood disaster in U.S. history. You know, when they show videos of the motorboats on the streets and overpasses hidden by water, things are really bad. Emergency animal response teams and rescuers from around the country have deployed to the affected areas. And in the upcoming weeks, we will learn the details of their heroic work. I saw a video of two citizens rescuing a woman and her two dogs from her partially submerged pickup truck. Really nice to see. I sincerely hope the lessons from Katrina have been heeded and that loss of human life and animal life is being minimized. So after things dry up, we'll get first-hand reports from our friends who are there now, working so hard. Last year, I spoke with Jeff Dorson, Executive Director of the Humane Society of Louisiana, about preparing for natural disasters, and especially hurricanes. Let's listen to that now. Jeff, the images of animals from Katrina and the stories of lost animals were so heartbreaking. Where did we go wrong and what have we done since Katrina to improve the safety for our companion animals? Well, we were all horrified at what we saw and what we experienced on the ground, Lori. So we saw the devastation, the loss of life of humans and animals. And we went to our federal legislators and they passed federal laws and on the state level, to ensure pets have a safety way out during national disasters. In other words, if people are being saved and they have pets, so the pets get to go uh, on the evacuation route as well, whether it's boats or cars. So that's good on paper. There were some things done that looks good. In reality, Lori, I, we were shocked at how the systems didn't work even during our recent flood. Mm. We had two floods in Louisiana, up north in March and a huge one just in August. And our state, for whatever reason, declined to really mobilize well and enact uh, all the safety measures that we practiced on for the last 10 years. So I hate to disappoint the public, but I'm on the ground. I saw it firsthand. And for whatever reason, small groups had to go in because the large the state just decided not to mobilize to the extent that they needed to. And lives were lost again. Oh, that's so sad, Jeff. So what key points do we want to emphasize to pet guardians about planning for disasters and what they should do if a disaster comes? Don't rely on others. It's your family. Your pets are part of your family. It's up to you. They can't swim out. You've got to help them. So have your plan in place. Microchip and tag your animals. Key point, because if you're ever separated legally, how do we ever help you reunite with your pet? So you have to have documentation. Bring your medical records. Have enough carriers per animals. We see this a lot. They have large dogs. They have no way to transport them out. They don't have a big enough car, space, kennels, food, or provisions. So they leave them behind. Bad idea. That's almost a death sentence in these types of natural disasters. And it's not just hurricanes, Lori. As you know, we now are facing wildlife, uh, wildfires and uh, large storms and flooding. So anything can happen very quickly. So your plan, your emergency plan, practice it in your mind. Pets go with you. Have enough gas in your car. That's a key point, believe it or not. Gas stations close or they get crowded, and you can't get enough gas to get on the road to get out. So have your spare gas can with you. Have all your pets safely with you. 
have your destination point in mind. Where are you going? Do you have family, friends, a hotel that you can stay at? Do you have enough money on your credit card? Another key point, cash gets scarce during disasters. Everything kind of comes to a standstill, and you're on your own. So make sure you have a way out. Jeff, I know there are many pet guardians who feel it's not crucial to keep their animals up to date on their vaccinations. Do you want to expand on why it's so important for your pet to be vaccinated? Yeah, thank you, Laura, because A, it tells us that your animal is healthy and can be in a general population with other animals. So imagine if we don't have that information, we have to build out quarantine areas now on top of everything else we're doing, and it gets very complicated very quickly. Which animal isn't vaccinated, which is. Then, Lori, here's another lesson that we were disappointed in. Most of the dogs we rescued, and we rescued over 500 in the recent flood, that's just in one area of our state. Virtually all the dogs we rescued were heartworm positive yet again, because that's the same thing we found during Katrina. People won't spend $15 a month putting their dogs on heartworm prevention, and it breaks our hearts because who absorbs that cost now? How can you possibly adopt out? a dog that is heartworm positive. And so these individual pet owners really have to step up their game. They are not, and most of these dogs are not in good health before the flood. So you're putting enormous burden on those who are trying to help your dogs. So do it from the back line rather than the front line. Please vaccinate and put your animals on heartworm prevention. Take them regularly to the vet, have health checks, room them, have them be a part of the family. We're seeing over and over, Lori, the dogs are tied to trees. That's where they live. And that's where they have to survive during the flood. It was heartbreaking to find them dead on the end of their rope tied to a tree yet again. So it's really up to all of us. How are our neighbors doing? Do they need education, intervention? Do they not need to have pets if they can't take care of them? So it's a very complicated system. And our, our community down south needs to up their game because we're still not... We, there's a lot, a lot of room to improve how we care for our pets down here. Jeff, what should be in the evacuation kit? Here's what you need to have. Your medical supplies, if your animals need are on medication, keep it in a safe place. Put the medical records in a plastic bag. Have your kennels ready and with your name and phone number on them. That's another key point. Is remember, an evacuation is chaotic. And if you get separated, we don't even know whose animals is whose. Take a picture of you and your pet to help us identify. Imagine if you call us afterwards and say you're looking for a black cat. Well, guess what? We have 20 of them. Which one is yours? Help us out. So tattoo, microchip, collar, and tags. And a picture of you and your pet, that's a no-brainer. That will help us reunite you with your whatever pet you have. So those are four key points that you always have to remember. Your kennels, your carriers, your destination, your medical supplies, if your pet's on that, and enough money so that you can survive one or two weeks on the road or a different destination. Jeff, what's your website? HumaneLA.org. We still need help, Lori. We're still the only group on the ground still operating a relief center for pets, the only one like it in the area where people can still be reunited and that we can help them with anything they need. We have a pet distribution center in Livingston, one of the hardest hit areas. We have a warehouse with 60 pallets of donated food that we move out regularly to impacted animals. So donate to the after incident. There's lots of work after emergencies. So help us out if you can. HumaneLA.org. Visit us on Facebook, Humane Society of Louisiana.
In an event of a natural disaster, if you have to remember one thing, remember this. Don't leave your animals behind. Evacuate with your animals. Jeff Dorson, Executive Director of the Humane Society of Louisiana, thank you so much. My pleasure, Lori. Anytime. Peter, 63% of Americans find dog owners more attractive than non-dog owners. Mm. The researchers at National Today, America's favorite online destination to commemorate quirky and fun holidays, asked 3,000 American dog owners about their furry friends. Okay, quirky. Lay it on me. Okay. 59% of men and 66% of women say dog parents Mm -hmm. are sexier than non-dog parents. Never fear, non-dog owners. 67% of men and 79% of women say someone who expresses outward affection to dogs is also attractive. Seven in 10 dog owners would rather spend time with their pooches. Well, we know that. Yeah. What, Un- do, you th- what do you think it is for the cat people? It's like 99%. Yeah, exactly. rather spend time with their cat than like anyone in the world. <laughs> Unmarried pup parents would rather spend time with their dogs. of women and 23% of men say they choose to hang out with their pooch over going on a date. Yeah, that's sort of sad, I guess. Oh, going on a date. I mean, how many dates turn out to be like the real thing, you know? Overrated. (laughs) Top five reasons Americans love their dogs. Mm. Number one, my dog helps comfort me, 86%. Number two, my dog reminds me to seek out more joy, 71%. Number three, my dog helps me become more loving, 65%. Number four, my dog makes me look forward to going home, 64%. Mm-hmm. Number five, my dog teaches me to be more patient, 64%. Mm. You know, that's really interesting. It makes me wonder what, remember we were talking to Professor Hal Herzog about all these interesting things related to the relationships between people and their pets. I wonder if he would say that these opinions are really factual or people just saying what they believe and it's not necessarily true well don't you think a dog owner is more sexy than a non-dog owner of course i do men and women right yes yes men men are sexier too okay the top five most dog loving states based on how regularly dog owners in each state engaged in loving behaviors with their dog, like spoiling their dog or giving doggy kisses. Number one. <laughs> like, like dog kisses in public. Yeah, doggy kisses in public. Oh. Okay. We, do, we do that. What's number one? Number one state. Uh, mm, I'm going to say, how about uh, Arizona? California. <laughs> okay. Number two, New York. Number three, Washington. Number four, Tennessee. Number five, Florida. Hmm. There you go. Quirky, huh? That's quirky. Let's find some other animal holidays. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio. And I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats. Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week 
Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. I just learned that, that the American Bar Association has recently adopted a resolution advocating the implementation of trap, neuter, vaccinate release programs for community cats. And, you know, my first thought after that's interesting was why? Why would the American Bar Association care about feral or community cats? Well, a few emails later, and I was introduced to our next guest who has been working diligently on this, attorney Richard Angelo. Richard is a legislative attorney for Best Friends Animal Society, practicing in cat issues. And welcome, Richard. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Let me begin by reading the resolution so we're on the same page here. It's one sentence, and it comes from the tort trial and insurance practice section of the ABA, and this is what it states. Resolved that the American Bar Association urges state, local, territorial, and tribal legislative bodies and governmental agencies to interpret existing laws and policies and adopt laws and policies to allow the implementation and administration of trap, neuter, vaccinate return programs for community cats within their jurisdictions so as to promote their effective, efficient, and humane management. Richard, what's the background on this resolution and why is the ABA interested in this area? It's been a a kind of a long-term project of the Animal Law Committee of the American Bar Association. The Animal Law Committee is under the tort trial and insurance practice section, which you mentioned earlier. And the Animal Law Committee is a group of attorneys nationwide who practice or are involved in uh, animal-related legal issues. Myself and Joan Schaffner from George Washington School of Law, she's a professor there, took on this project because in working around the country, we see a lot of discrepancies in how laws are applied to community cats, people involved in their programs, shelters that want to get involved in trap, neuter, vaccinate, return programs. And these resolutions are from the ABA have been a great tool on other issues in the past in trying to get local, state, and other uh, municipal government officials and authorities to adopt programs to allow for animal shelters to implement programs kind of like this. How does the legal status of feral cats create unique challenges uh, when you're trying to create legislation? The number of issues that arise is actually astounding to me. once you start getting into it, uh, feral cats are treated differently in some states at the state and local levels, be it at the county and, and local municipal level, uh, depending upon how their local ordinances and even the state statutes and regulations are written. What this resolution hopefully will do will be provide a tool for 
advocates like myself, like local advocates on and uh any area within the country to be able to take this and say, hey, we need to be consistent with the treatment on this so that these programs, trap, neuter, vaccinate, return programs, community cap programs nationwide can be implemented and administered to their fullest effect and uh, effectiveness. And the traditional animal control laws, they can be obstacles also, and particularly in the areas of animal abandonment and feeding bans. Can you explain that? Absolutely. Um, a lot of times what happens, in fact, I think the, the resolution that you read at the top actually has about a 16-page report attached to it, and we discuss in pretty good detail in that report about the abandonment and feeding ban issue. Um, in fact, there is an actual attorney general opinion in, I think it's Virginia, that says uh, shelters cannot practice the return portion of trap, neuter, vaccinate, return because it could be interpreted to be abandonment, Mm. meaning taking a companion animal and putting it back out essentially where it was found after uh, vaccinating and obviously sterilizing the animal. But a lot of, in Virginia, it can be interpreted that a criminal abandonment statute could apply to that act if a municipal authority tries to do it. So in other states, if a volunteer, a local volunteer, a community caretaker were to engage in that practice, put an animal back, it is possible in some cases that they could be charged criminally for being a Good Samaritan and putting, uh, taking care of this cat, vaccinating it, sterilizing and putting it back where it was found. Feeding bans are kind of a, obviously a whole other issue, but part and parcel with uh, community cat programs nationwide, especially trap, neuter, vaccinate, return. Community cat caretakers, people regularly go out and feed colonies of cats yeah. and care for them on a regular ongoing basis. A lot of times, we'll see municipalities um, across the country really think that they're going to control a community cat, feral cat problem by saying, we're going to criminalize anybody feeding these cats regularly or at all. And people could have fines. In fact, I believe in, I think it was Kansas recently, someone was actually ticketed and could be potentially sentenced to to jail for feeding feeding feral cats in their neighborhood. And what the municipalities are trying to do is thinking if we're not going to feed these cats, they're going to go away. And obviously the research has showed us that that's simply not the case. They're going to find another place to uh, find food. Richard, when a resolution like this and a report is issued, what happens? What can we expect to see now? Well, actually, this resolution is is very exciting for the Animal Law Committee and other advocates like Best Friends and and other national organizations nationwide because it's one of the first, I I guess, mainstream organizations that's a very influential organization, obviously, the American Bar Association, to say, you know what, these programs work. Let's make sure we get the word out on this and, and try to work these programs to the largest benefit to the public as well as to the cats. And what we want this resolution to do is to be a tool 
for advocates nationwide, not just lawyers. This is uh, written in such a way that any person going to their local city council meeting, going to their uh, county commissioners meeting, going to their state legislators can say, look, the American Bar Association has adopted this resolution after a long process uh, and extreme vetting and going through it and saying these programs are good for the municipalities, they're good for the public, they're good for the animal shelters, and in my mind, most of all, they're, they're good for the community cats in, in whatever locale that they're at. So by having the credibility of the American Bar Association adopting this resolution behind these advocates, we want them to be able to take it into their local municipalities and say, hey, feeding bans don't work, or we really want to implement this trap, neuter, vaccinate, return program to take the pressure off of our, our local municipal animal shelter or our local um, uh, trap, neuter, vaccinate, return groups. Let's make it easier on these Good Samaritans to be able to care for and to hopefully reduce the population of community cats in the neighborhood because that's what we're working for. We want to be able to make sure that these cats are properly cared for and Good Samaritans are being punished for trying to do the public some good and assisting them with local municipal authorities. Richard Angelo from Best Friends Animal Society, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalstodayRadio.com. AnimalstodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. It's AnimalstodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. If you've ever tried to travel internationally with an animal, with your pet, you probably know how hard this can be in terms of regulations and the process you need to go to. Well, my very dear friend, David Kirk and his family, they are experiencing a special set of challenges related to their daughter's travel. David is co-founder of Forever Meow, by the way. And as I said, we go back quite a while. And David's been sending me little updates about what he's going through. So I want to welcome him and see if he can uh, give us some details and maybe give you some advice if you uh, have a similar situation. Hello, David. Hi there, Peter. This is... uh, unique or not unique. This is an unusual situation, but worth talking about. So why don't you just lay it out for us? What have you been working on? Well, the challenge was a, a, an interesting one to start with. Our daughter, Selena, has been accepted into university in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Selena has an emotional support animal that is her cat that travels everywhere with her. And we had wanted and she had insisted that her cat stays with her so we started to look into the process of uh, having the cat travel with her and and having the cat legally in the country we weren't interested in anything that wasn't legal Uh, generally we found the challenge comes down to two things the first one is getting the cat on a plane and the second one is making sure that you have the right permissions from government bodies to have the cat enter a particular country legally. Yeah. First thing we learned was that there are three types of pet per se, uh, service animal, 
that are pretty well defined both in the U.S. and Europe that, that are trained animals that have specific skills to help someone with a disability. Uh, in Europe, the, the, the classical definition uh, would be a seeing-eye dog. Yeah. Uh, there are then, uh, strongly, more strongly in the U.S. than in Europe, emotional support animals that would provide comfort and help um, with people who don't have hard disabilities. So, for example, PTSD uh, might be a condition where an emotional support animal will be very, very beneficial. And then there are simply pets. In the U.S. and in Europe, service animals are allowed to fly in cabin. And, and you would think that because they're providing a service to somebody who's got some sort of disability. Um, we also found that the concept of service cats or emotional support animals or cats is very, very alien. People, probably 95% of the time we talk to them, assume we were talking about a dog. Oh. So, so anyway, in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, or certainly flying into Europe, the, the concept of service animals traveling in a cabin is well understood and well supported. So, David, how are the plans coming along? We ran into our first big problem trying to get from Los Angeles to Belfast. Uh, there's no flights that fly directly to Belfast, so we had to change. Um, we started by thinking of flying into Amsterdam and then from Amsterdam to Belfast. Um, our next route was from uh, Los Angeles to London Heathrow and then to Belfast. And I'll explain the route we ended up with and why we ended up with it. What we found was uh, when we were trying to make reservations, the reservations people that were helping kind of knew about service animals, uh, but really, really didn't understand about emotional support animals, cats or dogs. Uh, now, the good thing was that in the airlines we dealt with, which happened to be U.S.-based airlines, they very, very quickly referred us to um, a special desk that did have a great understanding here. And, and after several hours over many days uh, trying to find out what we could do, um, a 10-minute discussion with this special desk really cleared things up. Hmm. In, in fact, they were extremely helpful uh, when we explained that we had an emotional support animal and we had the proper documentation, which is basically a letter from a doctor uh, to support the claim. Uh, not only was our cat allowed to fly in cabin, but it flew for free. Which, which I thought was a wonderful thing. Hmm. And, and not only that, uh, there are limits to the number of animals that can fly in cabin. An emotional support animal or a service animal does not go against that count. So it's never a question of, oh, we're full with animals, we can't take anymore. That was wonderful. Our first big problem came booking through uh, a U.S.-based airline uh, on the route to London Heathrow and then Belfast, unbeknownst to us, they did a code share. And the code share was not a U.S. airline. And without our knowledge, we discovered that they did not allow animals in cabin <laughs> at all, uh, unless it was a service dog. Um, and we found that by mistake, simply because we were doing the due diligence thing of following up, etc. So um, we were stuck, managed to get to London Heathrow, 
Um, the only thing we could do at this point was to see if there was a way to drive. Um, we got train routes, ferry routes. That was another, probably another 13 to 15 hour journey. Uh, so I'd, we'd wanted to avoid that if we could, particularly since the, the flight uh, from London Heathrow to Belfast was less than 45 minutes. We even looked at, although it was something that we really didn't want to do, um, having our cat shipped in cargo. It's a 45-minute flight. Uh, although we had fears and were, uh, you know, trepidation of, of any animal flying in cargo, um, we were kind of stuck this time. What we learned, and we learned this from multiple European airlines, was that they basically outsourced everything to do with pets to independent third parties. They recommended us two. The cheaper of the two basically was gonna cost us $1,000 for one 11 pound cat mm -hmm. in a regulation carrier to fly from London Heathrow to Belfast. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't even tell us which flight it would be on. Yeah. You know, so the thought of our cat sitting for hours and hours and hours in a carrier was just not on for us. So we very quickly jettisoned that, not just because of the cost, uh, but because of the uh, inconvenience it would be to, to our cat. Um, we ended up flying directly from the U.S. to Dublin. And from Dublin, it is a simple coach or two-hour train ride to Belfast. Mm. Um, so that was the, the ultimate we did. We learned along the way that many, many of the European airlines simply – Point blank refused to allow to consider any animal in cabin unless it was a certified service dog. And even then, if you wanted to put your animals in, in cargo, um, you were dealing with some third party that, in all honesty, I, I thought was just there to get people off of their back. Uh, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to do this? I find a U.S. airline where you can land in a large a European city directly from the U.S., and you can get to your final destination by bus or by train, i.e. avoid having to take uh, a flight originating and terminating in, the, in Europe. The second, part, the second uh, area that we ran into, which is uh, unavoidable, um, is the government regulations. Um, interestingly enough, in the U.K., as recently as 2011, which is literally only six years ago, every animal coming in to the UK had to spend six months in quarantine. It had to come and be verified that, that it was vaccinated or to be vaccinated. And whether it was vaccinated or not, it would spend six months in quarantine. Incredible. It's been that way for, I believe, 180 years. <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons it changed was pressure from the European Union to conform to the standards that they had. So, you know, had, had it been the case that Katniss was going to have to spend six months in quarantine, we would probably have found a different country for Selena's university. Because um, we are that, uh, that serious about not having animals caged for that amount of time. Anyway. So what we found was regulations on the U.S. side with the USDA require 
proof of vaccination, usually for rabies, at certain times, verified by a vet. Very easy process. Local vet has done it for us, has set us up with a vet at LAX. On the other side, the country you're landing into has verification processes so they can see the animal coming in. They will usually trust the paperwork from your personal vet. We have read that in certain circumstances they may uh, quarantine the animal, I guess if they see something that they're worried about, and under extreme circumstances, they may even euthanize the animal. Mm. I'm assuming that's if they see signs of rabies. Yes. In our case, people were very responsive via email. People were very responsive here. So the paperwork, whilst it is a little bit, you know, you have to do some work for it, it's nowhere near as complex as trying to get on the airplane. Thank you for sharing that story and providing a little starter lesson for anyone who wants to take this on. Yes, don't, don't undertake the task lightly. Give yourself plenty of time and, uh, and understand you're going to be making a lot of phone calls. Thanks, David. Okay. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit AIanimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of MyPillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented MyPillow, I wanted it to where you can move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep sleep faster and you will stay there longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed. It's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. My pillow is now offering 50% off their four-pack special plus free shipping. Go to MyPillow.com or call 800-950-0658. That's 800-950-0658 and use promo code STU. That's 50% off plus free shipping. Don't delay. Order now. Well, September is Save the Koala Month. So I thought we'd talk just a few minutes about koalas, Peter. Okay, I'm ready. First of all, people refer to them as koala bears, but they're really not bears at all, as many people might believe, and they're not even related to bears. They get their name koala bear because they sort of look like teddy bears, but they're really marsupial mammals like kangaroos and opossums. And they are marsupials because their babies are carried in pouches. Now, a newborn koala baby is called, do you know? 
what they're called, a Peter? Joey. A Joey. Very good. Mm-hmm. And this Joey is less than an inch in length, believe it or not, and lives in the mother's pouch for about six months while its eyes, legs, and fur develops. And then he or she makes its way out of the pouch onto his or her mother's back and just rides on mom's back as Joey continues to be nursed by mother with her milk. And then after about a year, he or she is pretty much fully weaned and is off on its own. Full-grown koalas weigh about 20 pounds. Koalas only have one baby at a time, so they don't have litters like dogs and cats do. They prefer to live alone and not be part of a pack or a group, and they spend most of their lives in trees. Now, interesting, the only food koalas eat, which happens to be poisonous to most animals, are eucalyptus leaves. Koalas have certain bacteria in their stomachs to help detoxify the chemical toxins in the leaves and helps with the digestive process. They eat about a pound of leaves per day. There are different varieties of eucalyptus leaves in the wild, and each koala acquires a taste for specific varieties by adulthood. Now, koalas don't need to drink much water. They obtain most of their water from the leaves. So they spend most of their lives in trees and they need a lot of trees and a lot of space to keep them happy and healthy. That's another reason why it just kills me to see these animals living in captivity in zoos. Now, other than in zoos, koalas are only found in Australia. The estimated lifespan of a koala in the wild is about 13 to 18 years, but their lifespan is beginning to decline because their habitat is slowly or I should say rather quickly, disappearing. As of 2015, the Australian Koala Foundation estimates that there are less than 80,000 koalas left, with the possibility of that number being as low as 43,000. Koalas are not officially classified as endangered, but the Australian koala population had dropped by 90% in less than a decade, so they are definitely threatened. Their population is shrinking due to the destruction of their natural habitat. I read 80% of their habitat has been destroyed. We're just cutting down all their eucalyptus trees. Also, domestic dogs, wildfires, and roadway accidents and disease also contribute to their dwindling population. So there you go. Some facts about koalas, and September is Save the Koala Month. Lori, they are awfully cute, aren't they? So cute. Yeah. Now I'm pleased to welcome Janet Marlowe. She's an internationally recognized composer, researcher, and sound behaviorist. And I recently met her at SuperZoo, and her company is called Pet Acoustics. I have been looking at and using the new device, Pet Tunes. Janet, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. So it was so interesting for us to have a quick chat at the at the show. And there's a whole world of the influence of sound on animal behavior. Yeah, absolutely. My previous career was performing music for humans and uh, recording in classical and jazz and performing in, you know, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center and understanding acoustics. And all my pets would come to my side when I would practice. And then I realized over time how profound music and sound is to an animal's behavior because it puts them in a state of calm. And so I did three years research on exactly what the hearing ranges are for dogs and and started composing music. And I came up with the innovative concept called species-specific music in 1997, meaning that if you take human music and you modify it according to frequency content for a dog uh, by eliminating that, that kind of cutoff point that puts them into alert. 
um, and hypervigilance, then uh, they they release tension and they they remain calm. And so I created CDs originally and sent them all over and did testing and clinical studies, et cetera. And veterinarians were awesome with that. And uh, lo and behold, it was guaranteed that when this particular these particular tracks were played for dogs, that they would be relaxed and calm and content. So I started conceptualizing more music for cats and horses and birds yes. for all of this kind of behavioral balance, which is so important for them in their listening environment. And then for pet owners, put that music into a Bluetooth speaker, a little cube, which you now have, for the convenience of going from the home. Like I put mine on for my dog every time I leave for separation anxiety. And then uh, you take it from the home to the car, to the vet, to the hotel, to the groomer. And wherever your pet is, will be not anxious or, or modified behavior so that we don't have uh, our pets in a state of stress because we know that stress leads to illness and uh, and shortens lives and we want them with us as much as possible. And I just want to emphasize that you've done uh, research on the particular tracks of music that you have uh, created to verify all this. Oh yes, these are all clinical studies. I've been published in um, veterinarian journals, um, scientific journals, and uh, we're always uh, improving and testing, and um, and uh, and we're also um, we are a preferred product for uh, fear-free pets um, for veterinarian practices across the country. And certainly portable, as you describe. Why don't you take just a couple of seconds and tell us about your other sound-related products, because they are fascinating. The Safe and Sound series is this year's products for cats, mostly. Uh, and, and small dogs, and it's all um, noise-canceling materials that are used, for example, in a tunnel, which I designed for cats to be able, instead of running into underneath a bed or being lost in a closet, this is a tunnel that the cat will actually go into and um, not hear, uh, you know, not be afraid of uh, noises and um, diminish stress um, for noise phobias. And then we have a pet bed, that's also designed with noise-canceling material and also a crate liner for motion sickness for cats because they have such a terrible time going in the car. Well, Janet, you've really so, opened up our eyes and ears to this whole area, and I think we'll become much more aware of the impact of sound on the health and wellness and uh, level of uh, stress of, of many of our animals. And uh, I'll just say the website is petacoustics.com, right? Yes, exactly. That's Janet Marlar. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Every day in the United States, tens of thousands of puppies and kittens are born. Unfortunately, there are not enough homes for these cats and dogs. One unfixed female cat and her offspring can be the source of more than 400,000 cats in seven years. One female dog and her unfixed offspring can produce about 67,000 puppies. Too many cats and dogs are unwanted, so they end up being neglected, abandoned, or turned into shelters. Millions of healthy pets are killed in shelters annually in the U.S., more than 50% of the animals that enter our country's shelters get euthanized. Fortunately, there is a solution to prevent this unnecessary killing of animals. Have your pet spayed or neutered. If you want a new dog or cat, rescue one from a shelter and save a life. 
This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org.